Welcome back to Mark's Madness Collaboration. It's just us today. It's collaboration. Without a collaborator, it's not really anything. Yeah. Uh, uh, welcome back. We, welcome we have back. had three episodes where one person is missing and has been a different person each time. So it, we like it's a nice thing you can do when you've got a deep <laughs> stable of hosts as we have now. Is you just rotate in and out. You got to keep everybody fresh, baby. Uh, it's important to rest your starters going into the postseason. Something, something. Analogies. They're there. They're in there somewhere. Um, welcome back to Mark's Sports. Madness Pod. How we, do they work? How do they work? <laughs> uh, welcome back to Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we are going to be finishing our slight detour. This is our uh, mainline series we are reading right now is The Red Deal by The Red Nation. Um, but we are taking a minor detour to do uh, The Principles of Communism by uh, one Frederick Engels, he of the good beard. Um, <laughs> the great bearded and, one. And we thought we were going to get that all done in one episode last week. And we are, oh, we, were well, so we are nothing if not ambitious fools. Uh, we should have <laughs> learned this long ago, but that's where we are. That's where we are in this day and age. So uh, we will be finishing the reading of that today. Uh, and then Shukmani 2 will be back with us uh, on the next episode uh, when we are discussing the next chapter or the next section of the Red Deal. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we are going to, before we get into uh, the last parts of Principles of Communism, uh, David, uh, it's time for some current events. Yes. And um, so, I mean, obviously a lot of stuff is going on, you know, around the world right now. Um, there's uprisings in Haiti and there's, you know, forces coming over from Mexico and Dominican Republic to help do the U.S.'s bidding and, and put down the revolutionary actions in Haiti. Um, there's, of course, the the protests in Iran, which Americans are way too focused on and have many complexities to them, uh, but certainly come from revolutionary nature. Uh, people with fundamental misunderstandings like, you know, our police beat the shit out of and kill people all the time. So we hear police beating and we're like, oh, that must happen all the time from these cops. And, and, and it doesn't. And people have trouble wrapping around that. Just some, you know, some chauvinism there. Kind of like when people try to bash Cuba for gay rights, where they're like the leaders in LGBTQ plus rights, but they relate to adapt specifically gay marriage because they were working on this incredibly revolutionary family policy and gay marriage doesn't have the same um, context, but people chauvinistically point to that. Um, so that's kind of happening. But really, really, the two things I think we should touch on, especially doing the Red Deal and focusing on the number one issue. This should be the number one issue in everyone's minds. The fact that this is not the number one issue in every single person's mind, even with COVID ra- raging on, um, is pretty damn concerning. And that's climate change. Um, and of course, you know, we saw it manifest in um, where was it that the snow crabs disappeared? Was it Alaska or Seattle? Alaska? Ala- or I think it was Alaska canceled snow crab season. Yeah, yeah, they canceled snow crab season. Um, just there's just billions of snow crabs missing. Um, you know, I mean, people overfish the grounds because they don't care about the environment. They care about profit, profit, profit. And then climate change. We we've said it before. We we've seen it with bugs first. This is the what is it, the sixth mass extinction event in Earth's Yay! history. The first one humans have been alive for. So. You know, um, the earth will still keep going. It will. Yeah. Uh, humanity is not invincible, though. And humanity's no. downfall will not be humanity, as some people like to, to put it. It is Anthropocene climate change. Uh, but it's capitalism. 
It's the economic model that was grown out of colonialism and reinvigorates it through imperialism. It is capitalism, it is greed, and not you know in just some luddite fashion. Although industrialization, you know, radically increased that. Capitalism just strips and destroys lands for any resources. It's the capitalism. Yeah. And and beyond that, David, you, you missed out on what I saw was the, the other cause of the snow crabs. And that, David, is, of course, Russia. Oh, oh, good. That's nice. That's nice. I, I don't know if you were aware of that. Crabs. Yes, Russia, Russia snuck across the border, stole all our snow crabs, and took them back to Russia to create a snow crab shortage, David. This, I wish I was fucking with you. That was a take I saw on Twitter. It hurt my soul. This, this explains the, the Nord Street 2 false flag. It goes right to the top. <laughs> right to the top. This was all for the God. crabs. If we miss that, by the way, um, so the U.S. has been bragging that it's, you know, the war started because the U.S. shut down Nord Stream 2, essentially, and Nord Stream 1 goes through Ukraine. The U.S. has been bragging about destroying Russia's economy and Russia's, you know, energy relationship with Europe and has been saying they would destroy the the pipeline. Nord Stream 1, of course, I believe is all across land through Eureka or through Eureka, through Ukraine. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and then Nord Stream 2, I believe, goes through I've suddenly I'm I'm good with geography and I've completely forgotten the large bay that goes through the the Baltic Sea. That's what I'm thinking of. The um, Baltic Sea. The Baltic Sea. Um, and Nord Stream 2 runs through there. And of course, is something that, you know, Russia wanted a false flag to start a war because that's where you get like SS Lusitania type shit. Um, they would do that to start the war. They're already in a war. So that kind of seems like a fucked up motivation. And Russia could also just turn off the gas. And Russia, you know, very badly has wanted this project to the point that they launched the war because they lost the project. Um, and they're supposed to be sabotaging it themselves in an expensive, almost unrepairable way. Seems a little odd. Um, but now, you know, obviously with the snow crab hoarding, it all makes sense. It all makes sense, yes. folks. Yeah. Yep. 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 <laughs> that's, that's what I come here for is the real deep takes, gang. Yeah. But I mean, just, you know, remember, this is something that people have tried hard to bring about awareness. And so even when you're bashing on something that's like performative bullshit funded by an oil exec, realize that the people that are participating in that are a little desperate. And while we've seen people be overly performative with their work, while we've seen companies try to steer revolutionary action their way um, by funding, you know, astroturf groups, immediately thinking something as insufferable or astroturfed or anything like that, even if it turns out to be right, is probably not our best reaction because if it's getting attention, like people genuinely will self-immolate on the the stairs of the Supreme Court to try to raise climate awareness and no one will fucking talk about it. So, you know, I don't, I don't give a shit if art is destroyed and, and an oil exec's kid is behind it. I don't fucking care. Um, Maybe then don't put all your money into that (laughs) and don't support them specifically to fight climate change, but be happy that it's being fucking talked about. You know, it's the media will spin it as insufferable because that's part of the project. When you go, oh, well, this is just to make uh, climate activists look ridiculous. Well, then don't call it ridiculous because people echo that shit. Either Mm -hmm. don't pay attention to it or amplify it in a positive fashion, just saying people are desperate. And if you look stupid because they're secretly in oil, stop trying to be a fucking saint. Okay, stop trying to be a martyr. Stop the American. We talked about this, the American Christian culture and and the martyrdom and the trying to be the perfect individual this is not individual task okay sometimes you got to be a little brave you got to take some egg on your face as long as you're standing on the right fucking side yep 
and and yeah. and think about it, the bigger thing. And we've talked about this with like the U.S.'s enemies. You know, oh well, what if I say Assad isn't that bad and he does commit a genocide or something like that, right? You know, it's always just wanting to be on the right side of history. We want to look back. You know what? You know what's going to put you on the right side of history? Us having a revolution. Think about the material effects of your actions, not the ooh, will this come back to bite me? Ooh, I might not be right one time. Think about. What does this do politically when I speak up in this way? Because if you're going to take your individual actions and factor it in to our group efforts, our revolutionary actions, as you should be doing, um, then you shouldn't be focusing on your individual purity. The amount of purity needed to be a revolutionary should come naturally, right? You should be able to suddenly not be transphobic to to be an anti-imperialist. That should come pretty naturally, okay? And the people that you see get called out for that bullshit because they're grifters, they're grifters. You don't have to worry about being called out for bullshit and being called a grifter because you weren't perfect. But take the stance that brings about revolution. That's why in organizations we have democratic centralism. That's why even if the other person is bad, you know, we saw weapons of mass destruction bullshit lead to a war. Saddam isn't good, but that is our ultimate example of not believing the lies and the bullshit. Think about how what you say affects people when they hear it. Mm-hmm. That, that is how you address current events. Amen. That is very well said. Thank you, David. Um, from there, anything else before we head into principles? No, that's all I got. All right. Well, then we are going to jump right into the principles of communism. Section 12. What were the further consequences of the industrial revolution? Big industry created in the steam engine and other machines, the means of endlessly expanding industrial production, speeding it up and cutting its costs. With production thus facilitated, the free competition, which is necessarily bound up with big industry, assumed the most extreme forms. A multitude of capitalists invaded industry, and in a short while, more was produced than was needed. As a consequence, finished commodities could not be sold, and a so-called commercial crisis broke out. Factories had to be closed, their owners went bankrupt, and the workers were without bread. Deepest misery reigned everywhere. After a time, the superfluous products were sold, the factories began to operate again, wages rose, and gradually business got better than ever. But it was not long before too many commodities were again produced, and a new crisis broke out, only to follow the same course as its predecessor. Ever since the beginning of this 19th century, the condition of industry has constantly fluctuated between periods of prosperity and periods of crisis, nearly every five to seven years. A fresh crisis has intervened, always with the greatest hardship for workers and always accompanied by general revolutionary stirrings and the direct peril to the whole existing order of things. And that cycle has not changed since. No. Not one bit. Boom, bust, boom, bust, boom, boom bust. Boom, go- bust. So goes capitalism. And we've talked about this many times, you know, Marx and Engels analyze this and we see it, you know, we, mm-hmm. we see it every time. And those crashes, it's not the wealthiest that get hurt. Most of the pain no. goes to the working class and some small amount of pain goes to the petty bourgeois who gets super defensive that they dare might fall into the working class. And that's how we get shit like fascism, which defends capitalism at the utmost, but wants to regulate it to make sure it happens, make sure it doesn't hurt the, the good middle class people it's not supposed to hurt. And again, no such thing as middle class, but that's how these petty bourgeois think of themselves. Uh, and then people grip tight to things like the other hierarchies uh, that are centered around class 
class that are built into the system, such as racism and xenophobia. Um, so yeah, I mean, we know how the cycles go. We've, we've seen it. We still haven't recovered from 2008. We still haven't recovered from 2020. Um, we've got a weird, you know, I don't know what to think of the housing market. It's a paper tiger as it was right before 2008, but it's being held up by huge landowners buying stuff up. And I don't know if it's going to be another crash again as most likely, or if it's going to just like completely flip where people will just never own homes again. And they will all have, you know, tyrannical mass landlords, but shit's bad. And, and it always shit ain't great. Way. And th- I mean, it's been, I mean, looking at the, the stock markets and all of that for a year, they've mm-hmm. been down. I mean, a year of, of drops in the market, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it ain't great. It ain't great. No. And then they'll bolster up the fascism with bullshit. Like nobody wants to work. Mm-hmm. 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 Moving on, what follow 13 what follows from these periodic commercial crises? First, that through though big industry in its earliest stage created free competition, it has now outgrown free competition. This was in the 19th century we're talking about outgrowing free competition. That for big industry, competition and generally the individualistic, I can say words, organization of production have become a fetter which it must and will shatter. That so long as big industry remains on its present footing, it can be maintained only at the cost of general chaos every seven years, each time threatening the whole of civilization and not only plunging the proletarians into misery, but also ruining large sections of the bourgeoisie. Hence, either that big industry must itself be given up which is an absolute impossibility, or that it makes unavoidably necessary an entirely new organization of society in which production is no longer directed by mutually competing individual industrialists, but rather by the whole of society operating according to a definite plan and taking account of the needs of all. Second, that big industry and the limitless expansion of production, which it makes possible, brings with it uh, within the range of feasibility a social order in which so much is produced that every member of society will be in a position to exercise and develop all his powers and faculties in complete freedom. It thus appears that the very qualities of big industry, which in our present day society produce misery and crises, are those which, in a different form of society, will abolish this misery and these catastrophic depressions. We see with the greatest clarity, one, that all these evils are from now on to be ascribed solely to a social order which no longer corresponds to the requirements of the real situation. And two, that it is possible through a new social order to do away with these evils altogether. Damn. Lot going on there. Lot going on there. Um... So, I'm I mean, sorry, I, think, I didn't realize my microphone was on mute. Uh, <laughs> no, no, you're you're good. Um, just yeah. a a a very jam packed uh, paragraph, I would say. Yes. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, and and the really, I I want to get back to the because this is something they saw even then, and every bit of this is is more true today. Is the hence either that big industry must itself be given up, which is an absolute impossibility, or that it makes unavoidably necessary an entirely new organization of society, which production is no longer directed by the mutually competing individual interest, but rather by the whole society operating according to a definite plan and take into account the needs of all, right? It's saying capitalism is not sustainable. It's yeah. just not. Nope. 
and this is further this is the theoretical you know prescription of that uh mm-hmm. with a very short theoretical proof uh the the long theoretical proof is capital um that's what it's there for that's what it does um so yeah it is this you can see how this how this kind of all blends into the 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 same the same soup, as it were, the same stew of ideas that was, <laughs> that Marx and Engels were working on. The, at the time. These are the bay leaves sitting in in the water. There um. you go. <laughs> <laughs> All number, right, so num- section. Oh, I was oh you want to go? Over, yeah. Okay. Yeah, All, right, go for it. All right. All right. Um, section fourteen. What will this new social order have to be like? Above all, it will have to take control of the industry and of all branches of production out of the hands of mutually competing individuals and instead institute a system which all these branches of production are operated by society as a whole that is for the common account, according to the common plan, and with the participation of all members of society. Again, socialism is not some, you know, no market, right? Socialism is not some, like, just little plots of of um you know communes it is society has such an incredible democratic input that industry follows that and serves society's needs right exactly um because before it was explicitly the needs of aristocrats and then with capitalism it becomes implicitly the needs and whims of capital and at some point it's going to have to be the needs of society or society can't hold up there's too many recurring revolutions that will happen and it's too destructive to humanity to have something that takes into no account of of nature or any sort of order absolutely Um, it will in other words abolish competition and replace it with association Moreover, since the management of industry by individuals necessarily implies private property, and since competition is in reality merely the manner and form which the control of industry by private property owners expresses itself, it follows that private property cannot be separated from competition and the individual management of industry. Private property must, therefore, be abolished, and in its place must come the common utilization of all instruments of production and the distribution of all products according to the common agreement. In a word, what is called the communal ownership of goods. In fact, the abolition of private property is doubtless the shortest and most significant way to characterize the revolution and the whole social order, which has been made necessary by the development of industry. And for this reason, it is rightly advanced by communists as their main demand. And that still is the core, uh, one of the core main demands is. Yeah, I mean, well, you even see that that now, um, you know, when we're talking about land back, right, and the idea of private ownership of plots of land for for industry and and things like that all comes with the settler colonialism right exactly um we do have to advance this from angles we do have to adapt this to our society but in the end the major linchpin is the abolition of private property because the ultimate goal is the liberation of the oppressed masses yes and that is advanced through things that aren't even in this work yet, like the national question um, and decolonization. Uh, and that is, of course, advanced with the abolition of private property. Um, was not the abolition of private property possible at either time? 
No, every change in the social order, every revolutionary in, pro- in property relations is a necessary consequence of creation of new forces of production, which no longer fit into the old property relations. So basically, and again, people, you know, talk about Marx being too mechanical or Engels being too mechanical. Maybe they are. Um, you know, we, we have that discussion when we look back at it now. But so much of that accusation comes from stuff like this. And to this, there's a point, you know, I don't believe in like the whole Asiatic means of production and Engels got egged on the face pretty late with with that nonsense. But what I am going to say, you don't have to abolish private property if private property isn't set up, right? Yeah. You would abolish whatever hierarchy is in place, whatever unjust society is in place that needs to be replaced according to your material conditions. We just talked about this. And, and, you know, I made some offhand comments in the current events about how people accuse, you know, Cuba of of being homophobic when they and and again, you know, I'm not saying like before 1979, it was a paradise there. But uh, through a lot of societal and revolutionary work long before the United States had any sort of LGBTQ plus rights. And we look at how limited those are and how quickly they're being peeled back um, and how very little is to defend LGBT, uh, LGBTQ plus people um, under attack now. Um. You know, people looked at like gay marriage as specifically the the decider. Oh, if you've got that, you're you're advanced in gay rights, and if you don't, and it's just a chauvinistic measure based on your own conditions, right? The revolution yeah. comes based on the conditions where the revolution happens, and so that can differentiate wherever you are, and that doesn't just mean physical place; that can mean time. Exactly. Um, a, so, a factor that doesn't that I don't think gets brought up a lot is is that mm-hmm. that kind of relativity of it. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, you know, I mean, people joke about the the immortal science, but the idea behind that is it's an idea that's adaptable to the conditions. You know, it's a building block of thought of that you can research and, and move into revolution in your own way. Um, and. So, you know, when we talk about the immortal science, it means it's it's ongoing. It's adaptable to any space and time for us to understand revolution, for us to understand what is just, for us to understand how to combat this. And so you're looking at dialectical materialism and you've got to look at the material conditions. You've got to gather the evidence um, or even historical materialism. What were the conditions these revolutions or potential revolutions are happening in? How would they happen? What you know? What is the contradiction? What is the outcome? Right now, the contradiction is private property, and of course, you know, settler colonialism and imperialism. Um, and moving on again in a beautiful rendition of our, our good old fashioned "shut up and let the the work speak." Private <laughs> property has not always existed. Oh, there it is. Yeah, there Thanks. it is. Thanks, Freddie Beard. Um, So (laughs) uh, when towards the end of the Middle Ages, there arose a new mode of production, which could not be carried under the then existing feudal and guild forms of property. Again, this is obviously talking about Europe. Um, This manufacture, which had outgrown the old property relations, created a new property form, private property. And for manufacture in the early stage of development of big industry, private property was the only possible property form. The social order based on it was the only possible social order. So as long as it is not possible to produce so much, there's enough for all with more left over expanding the social capital and extending the forces of production. So long as this is not possible, there must always be a ruling class directing the use of society's productive forces and a poor oppressed class. How these classes are constituted depends on the stage of development. Um, and that, again, this is very early. This is what, 47. So that historical materialism was pretty mechanical at that point. We don't have to take that necessarily to a 
T to the point where it's like, it, it, it is what I just said, you know, that, that it adapts to its specific conditions, but there is also a, a mechanism of like, this is the one and only time this is possible. And it's like, <laughs> no, not quite. No. Um, but we're not worried about revising the past. The past is the past. We're worried about what to do now. Um, <laughs> the agrarian middle ages gives us the Baron and the serf. The cities of the later Middle Ages show us the guildmaster and the journeyman and the day laborer. The 17th century has its manufacturing workers. The 19th has big factory owners and proletarians. It is clear that up till now, the forces of production have never been developed to the point where enough could be developed for all. And that private property has come, become a fetter and a barrier in relation to further development of the forces of production. Now, however, the development of big industry has ushered in a new period. Capital and the forces of production have been expanded to the unprecedented extent, and the means are at hand to multiply them without limit to the near future. More, Again, this is dated. A little. We, we got to talk a little bit about degrowth, folks. Um, moreover the forces of production have been concentrated in the hands of a few bourgeois and while the great masses of people are more and more falling into the proletariat their situation becoming more wretched and intolerable in proportion to the increase of wealth of the bourgeoisie and finally these mighty and easily extended forces of production have so far outgrown private property in the bourgeoisie that they threaten at any moment to unleash the most violent disturbances in the social order now, under these conditions, the abolition of private property has become not only possible, but absolutely necessary. And again, yep. don't disagree with that necessity, but also that was written very rah-rah. I mean, you know, yeah. this wasn't the, the brochure to fire people up like the Communist Manifesto, but this was supposed to be basic for learning revolutionaries to kick off the revolution. There's a reason this and then the manifesto happens and then 1848 happens. Uh, these aren't a guidebook, but these go alongside some heavy organizing Marx and Engels were doing along with, of course, you know, the first several members of the first international, um, even some unsavory anti-Semitic ones. So a lot of people were doing revolutionary work and this was to make it simple and people hear this. And so people better read this at their fomenting revolution and go, oh, yeah, the time yeah. is now. Not and in 50 years, it will probably develop to something that can, you know, no. Now is is what he's now. saying because this is for revolutionaries. Mm -hmm. uh, section sixteen: Will the peaceful abolition of private property be possible? The, the libs ask desperately. <laughs> uh, How will you abolish police? Um, yep. Uh, it would be desirable if this could happen, and the communists would certainly be the last to oppose it. Communists know only too well that all conspiracies are not only useless, but even harmful. They know all too well that revolutions are not made in intention, intentionally and arbitrarily, but that everywhere and always they have been the necessary consequence of conditions which were wholly independent of the will and direction of individual parties and entire classes. But they also see the development of the proletariat in nearly all civilized countries has been violently suppressed, and that in this way, the opponents of com communism have been working towards a revolution with all their strength. If the opposed proletariat is finally driven to a revolution, then we communists will defend the interests of the proletarians with the deeds as we now defend them with words. Yeah, again, yep. I mean, that sounds a little mechanistic and people could certainly – we are reading this to see the roots of this we talked about before where the Pat Sox are going back to orthodox Marxism to spin it into something, um, you know, fascistic and, and patriotic and anti-Semitic and, and, and racist. But 
Um, but if you don't force the mechanism of that, if you read it for what it is, a revolutionary building block um, where we can learn from it, right? The key there is is the peaceful abolition of private property won't happen, you know, and that's what you should be able to get out of that. You should see idealism versus materialism. We don't just have the idea of revolution. We're not just forcing revolution. We know revolution has to be the will of the masses and it has to be the will of the masses because the conditions call for that and it's possible. That's not necessarily accelerationist. You do have to have a reason for revolution. Like no one is fighting to survive when they're already thriving. Right. They're, yeah. They fight to survive yeah. when they're dying. Um, but it's also not something that naturally happens. And so you see a unique situation. You see a possible revolutionary brewing and you want to make sure that revolution occurs and occurs in a just direction. You better start organizing. You better start get your ass moving because we are human beings for a reason. We are here, you know, so much as we have any control of history beyond just our material conditions. And we are not mechanists. We are materialists. We believe reality comes from the material and from evidence. And that's how we understand things. We don't believe the world is just an, an immovable path. Um, but the contradiction to that is the conditions, you know, have to exist and they, they influence the thought, but human action also has to drive those conditions forward. It also has to make that history. Right. So you and me can't just have the best idea and emerge. That's idealist bullshit. Conditions have to allow it. But so much as the will of the masses is revolution, you should be doing work towards that revolution. It's not going to mystically fall from the sky. As much as we would like it to. (laughs) 17. Will it be possible for private property to be abolished at one stroke? No. Okay, let's read that that sentence and then that, that, that first word there again, one more time. Will it be possible for private property to be abolished at one stroke? No. No. We are having a revolution in reality, folks. Yes. In reality. We don't wake up and it's revolution day and we do the thing and then it's over. <laughs> and then it's over, yeah. This is a, a huge process before and after the turnover of power. Yes. No, no more than existing forces of production can at one stroke be multiplied to the extent necessary for the creation of a communal society. In all probability, the proletarian revolution will transform existing society gradually and will be able to abolish private property only when the means of production are available in sufficient quantity. Section. And that includes yeah. again, you know, there there's a very there's an undertone here of like it needs to be enough. We need to produce enough. We need to, and we talked about, you know, degrowth. Even if Engels was right at the time, and I don't think he was, there was probably enough for the world then, but obviously things moved forward and things like life expectancy jumped a lot in the Industrial Revolution. We are not Luddites here after all, even if we advocate degrowth for environmental reasons. Um but uh now certainly <laughs> we don't need to expand uh, the production. So we don't need to lean too much on the, the so much till production gets there. But that is true nonetheless, right? Like you're not going to be able to, obviously part of the revolution is we're going to have to make racism not happen, right? We have to yeah. get rid of racism. We have to, I, 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 you can't just say abolish racism because it's not, um, it's material, but it's not like a, a grabbable thing. Like, Police, abolish police, abolish prison, you know, abolish private property. Um, racism is too, it's too much, many things put together, but we are going to get rid of racism. We're going to abolish it so much as that, that term applies. That's not going to happen overnight. You can't just like zip the thoughts out of people. You can't just like take the guns away from the racists in, in one fell swoop. You know, you're going to have to figure things out in a major societally reorganizing process. And the same thing with, 
you know, economics, right? We have a, a socialist revolution. There's not just immediate cutover. Like, yeah. oh, let's go from the bad industry to the good industry. We're going to have to, you know, nationalize things. We're going to have to uh, scale down, you know, military and, and, and things like that, right? Like there's things that will be completely abolished, um, like police and prisons. And there are other things that are going to have to, to, to work to scale down. And even things like abolition of police, that's a, a major process, right? That takes, you know, releasing people from prison. That takes building up the, the alternative systems that we're going to look to, to alleviate property and domestic violence and things like that, that actually solve the problems that policing just flat out does not and claims to. This is all a process. And we have to think of that process, which again, is another benefit for doing the work. You should be compelled to do this work as a revolutionary and on a moral basis as well, because you see the issues. And that's why organizing is important. Um, but additionally, it builds trust. So people actually listen to your political ideas. Otherwise, you're not just going to run around and say communist things and have people go, oh, that sounds cool. They're going to fall back on their their bullshit capitalist talking points of like, you know, burr North Korea or whatever. They're going to listen to you because they're going to see you doing good in their community. So you should be compelled to do it. They're going to see you doing good in their community. And this is the foundation for what happens on that other side of the power transfer of the revolution, this many, many year process. This gets the process going. You don't transfer power and then start stuff. You build the systems as much as you can to begin the transfer of power and so that you can use that organization and wrest power away. And then you build upon what you've built before you wrested power. Once you have the power to make a complete society for people, a revolutionary society. Again, we should look to Cuba and Bolivia and China and all of these existing systems. And we should look to all of them, not just pick one uh, because all of their conditions are different and all of them do it differently. And we should see how that happened. And we shouldn't just fetishize our revolutionaries of the past, but we should look at AIM and the Black Panthers and what has changed about today. Um, and we need to adapt all of that. And we need to adapt all that in action. Exactly. Sooner rather than later. Uh, all right. 18 here comes a big one what will be the course of this revolution hey a roadmap. all right let's do it above all it will establish a democratic constitution and through this the direct or indirect dominance of the proletariat direct in england where the proletarians are already a majority of the people indirect in france and germany where the majority of the people consist not only of proletarians but also small peasants and petty bourgeois who are in the process of falling into the proletariat who are more and more dependent in all their political interests on the proletariat and who must therefore soon adapt to the demands of the proletariat. Perhaps this will cost a second struggle, but the outcome can only be the victory of the proletariat. And now again, this was written in 1847. Let's update this to hammer plus sickle, include the sickle. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, exactly. Uh, Plus, there's not like traditional peasantry now, like like there was yeah, in Europe then. Exactly, we're we're talking lumpen, we're talking <laughs> we're, yeah, exactly all of this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And lumpen again, that's very specific. Lumpen is not like a just a subclass of like poorer working class. It's not just like houselessness or not. Lumpen is specifically anyone who operates outside of the private property driven capitalist mode of production. Exactly. So. Democracy would be wholly valueless to the proletariat if it were not immediately used as a means for putting through measures directed against private property and ensuring the livelihood of the proletariat. 
The main measures emerging as the necessary result of existing relations are the following. And here comes a numerated list of things they want. Limitation of private property through progressive taxation, heavy inheritance taxes, abolition of inheritance through collateral lines, brothers, nephews, etc., forced loans, etc. Yeah. Now, again, this is a material roadmap of what to do. This is not a substitute for a revolution before. We're talking about this being a work that people have have revised. We talked about Bernstein um, putting this out, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And what Bernstein did with it. And and you could see where that is happening too. So not just see like where the Pat Sox get this shit, but where Bernstein gets it, but also read it as theory that you can get something out of where we wouldn't be reading it at all. Exactly. Gradual expropriation of landlord, landowners, industrialists, railroad magnates, and ship owners, partly through competition by state industry, partly directly through compensation in the form of bonds. Confiscation of the possessions of all emigrants and rebels against the majority of the people. And that's, um, that's emigrants that's, with that's, an E. Emigres. Yeah. Emigrants with an, emigrants with an that's, E. Yeah, that would be like, um, you know, let's say a bunch of plantation owners um, suddenly exit and go, I don't know, 90 miles north and then spend 70 years saying you're Hitler with no definable, you know, genocide or expansionist war. Just say that a lot. Um, Or maybe you have to build a wall because you're worried about like all the scientists leaving to the West because the average person is, is better off in your society. But the well-off skilled people can get paid buco bucks in the western half of – or western three-quarters of your country. And you're just trying to make sure that the country is supported for the majority. You know, th- those are the kind of things we've seen this in action. Yes. Right? Um, we are not like pro-border people and we've seen the violence of borders. But also if someone has accumulated a bunch of wealth away from the working class and then it's time to redistribute that and that person just takes the money and runs and leaves you high and dry, we, we can't allow that, right? No. Um, I mean, it's 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 pretty simple science and, and you see the same thing. You know, we were talking about like land back doesn't mean all the Europeans just get up and go because like what if they just took all their wealth and industry and it's you strip all of the natural – you know, economies and societies that indigenous people had, uh, destroy it and then, you know, plot it covered in industry and then just pick up and leave and leave nothing behind. Right. I mean, strip it bare. That's that's not going to happen. No, 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 no. Organization for organization of labor or employment of proletarians on publicly owned land in factories and workshops with competition among the workers being abolished and with the factory owners insofar as they still exist being obliged to pay the same high wages as those paid by the state. Mm -hmm. Five, an equal obligation on all members of society to work until such time as private property has been completely abolished. Formation of industrial armies, especially for agriculture. Six, centralization of money and credit in the hands of the state through a national bank with state capital and the suppression of all private banks and bankers. Oh, if they had listened to that during the Paris Commune. Oh, yeah, baby. Seven, increase in the number of national factories, workshops, railroads, ships, bringing new lands into cultivation and improvement of land already under cultivation, all in proportion to the growth of the capital and labor force at the disposal of the nation. Um, that again, a little outdated, a little bit. Uh, well, not everywhere, not everywhere, it's not, not everywhere. universally, 
Yeah, yeah, like let's say you're you're you know a colonized nation that has been stripped bare. You can see the roads because they all lead to the port, and yeah. and you have ore mines, but you don't have anything doing what's ored because that's you know we talked about this with the um um uh I suddenly have forgotten oh uh, neo um neo colonialism yeah. Yeah, so we've talked about this in Africa with neocolonialism. Also, you can read, you know, um, how Europe underdeveloped Africa with Walter Rodney, which we did an excerpt of about Unilever. Um, you know, so that's a little different, but like you also can't look at a modern Western country and be like, oh, yeah, they just need to, you know, build up factories. It's like, mm, that's not yeah. the same now. No, that's that's outdated for Europe in the 1840s. Yeah. Eight, education of all children from the moment they leave their mother's care in national establishments at national cost, education and production together. You see this running through every Marxist society. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Nine, construction on public lands of great palaces as communal dwellings for associated groups of citizens engaged in both industry and agriculture and combining in their way of life the advantages of urban and rural conditions while avoiding the one-sidedness and drawbacks of each. That sounds a little utopian. It's, it's, yeah, it, it, it kind of is, um, yeah. We'll just move on from that. <laughs> Number 10, destruction of all unhealthy and jerry-built dwellings in urban districts. That seems reasonable. That's uh, Yeah, and there's a material thing. That might even have to move up the list. Yeah. Um, <laughs> again, you know, adapting for our time now. Number 11, equal inheritance rights for children born in and out of wedlock. Yeah. A dated, well, okay. So let's go back to Cuba and the family law, right? Mm -hmm. The that that's we we should, yeah, again we should be using Cuba as an inspiration we use Bolivia as inspiration we use Venezuela as inspiration we use Vietnam as inspiration we use China as inspiration we use the DPRK as inspiration uh, and one great bit of inspiration is that that takes that point and instead of being a weird sounding dated thing just takes it to the moon of exactly what society needs is you know review of and and any. Changes made too. I don't know if any even need to be though. An adaptation of Cuba's new revolutionary family policy. Yeah. Yep. Uh, number twelve: concentration of all means of transportation in the hands of the nation. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. the end of the list. Public, it is impossible. Public transportation, folks. Public transportation. It is impossible, of course, to carry out all these measures at once. But one will always bring others in its wake. Once the fine, first radical attack on private property has been launched, the proletariat will find itself forced to go even further, to concentrate increasingly in the hands of the state all capital, all agriculture, all transport, all trade. All the foregoing measures are directed to this end, and they will become practicable and feasible, capable of producing their centralizing effects to precisely the degree that the proletariat, through its labor, multiplies the country's productive forces. Finally, when all capital, all production, all exchange have been brought together in the hands of the nation, the private property will disappear of its own accord. Money will become superfluous, and production will so expand and man so change the society will be able to slough off whatever its old economic habits may remain. There is the prototype of the state will wither away. Yeah, state will wither away. Um, and then if you take that the wrong direction, you get kind of the new Soviet man, which is the idea that – I mean, they're, they, they're 
very well studied Marxist Leninists, and they came out that people will change and and serve the state, but. I, I think it was too uniform. You know, we operate yeah. in Marxism in classes, but classism or classism, uh, classes uh, are not, you know, they're idiosyncratic, right? There's no monolithic class. And so even with years of enlarged, more motivated workers, more, you know, people. So, I mean, you saw that, right? Like how many people voted to keep the Soviet Union when it was being abolished? How many protests erupted, right? People did turn into the new Soviet man. And yet there were still millions who didn't, who were still the same old greedy fascists that they're, they always were, yeah. right? Because that's not absolute. Exactly. That is on a class level and class is mm-hmm. a majority. Class is the material, the, 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 the power um, of, of a group of people. And so class matters in and above all. We should know that in society. But like, you know, we've talked about police abolition, actually doing things that stop murder. And we will do that um, when we abolish police, stop rape. It's not going to be 100%. Yeah. There is still going to be rape and murder. I'm sorry, but it's not going – it's going to be to a much lesser degree than now, and victims would see actual justice, not just some punitive measure that doesn't prevent anything for the next victim, that doesn't do anything for them, right? Um, so these things are not totally absolute. So I, I guess I don't even want to say the new Soviet man was wrong. They really did create the new Soviet man. Unfortunately, that is not absolute, and that is another thing since we've – been kind of leaning on how to take this in a um, um, revisionist fashion and being careful not to, I mean, revising to, to keep up to modern times, but not revising to break the core of it and take it in a new direction and, and, and use it dishonestly, right? And that's one way you have to be careful not to. Yep. But nope. yes, that is the withering away of the state. <laughs> number 19 will it be possible for this revolution to take place in one country alone no all right all right angles uh no <laughs> by creating the world just market, put, like angles yeah. and stalin in a room right now yeah yeah all right all right all right no by creating the world no, market. Stalin, Stalin did mean a very specific thing with communism in one country. He meant like, you know, not just constantly fomenting revolution in other countries and worrying about forwarding yours to the utmost. He, he worried about like setting an example and growing the Soviet Union's economy and, and world power to combat the West. Um, so, you know, communism in one country was a very specific thing. It didn't mean that all, you know, external relations would be abolished and it would be, you know, stateless immediately yeah no by creating the world market big industry has already brought all the peoples of the earth and especially the civilized peoples Ooh, good 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 word there civilized yeah we're back to that into such close relation with one another that none is independent of what happens to the others Further, it has coordinated the social development of the civilized countries again to such an extent that in all of them, bourgeois and proletariat have become the decisive classes and the struggle between them, the great struggle of the day. It follows that the communist revolution will not merely be a national phenomenon, but must take place simultaneously in all civilized countries. That is to say, at least... In England, America, France, and Germany. Oh, the list of civilized countries is very small. It's very small. short. Very small. Very, very small. small. Thanks. Thanks, for Thanks Angles. Not Thanks, problematic Freddy. at all. And they have to be simultaneous, too. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. This is, again, one of these things where we've just learned better. 
um, you know, a lot of this stuff is proven to be right or is the building blocks of something that's even more right than Engels imagined. And then some of the stuff is just is wrong and we don't need every little thing to be perfectly right. And aside from the, you know, racism and colonialism and just general grossness of the civilized country thing, um, it, you notice, you know, at the time he was calling Russia an Asiatic mode of production and, and well, where did the first socialist revolution happen? You know, mm-hmm. where is the largest socialist power now? It's in China. Um, you, you want to tell English ass angles uh, during the opium wars that China would, would be, you know, the beacon of socialism in the 21st century. He'd be like, that's not a civilized country. According <laughs> to this. He's like, oh, of course, they were in the 21st century. So the 20th century was dominated by England, France, America, Germany, yeah, right? Yeah, obviously, obviously. obviously. Um, further, it has coordinated the social development of the civilized co- – oh, no, I already read that nope. part. You just it read w- that. That's one that used the gross term like four times. It will develop in each of these countries more or less rapidly according as one country or – the other has a more developed industry, greater wealth, a more significant mass of productive forces. Hence, it will go slowest and will meet most obstacles in Germany, most rapidly, and with the fewest difficulties in England. Okay. Mm. <laughs> it will have uh, just swing and a miss, swing and a miss. <laughs> it will have a powerful impact on the other countries of the world and will radically alter the course of development, which they have followed up to now, which will while greatly stepping up its pace. It is a universal revolution and will accordingly have a universal range. Womp womp. Yeah. Um, again, they were dealing with the rise of the European Spring, and there's some gross colonial mindset there. And we are Marxists. We don't predict the future. We have our ideas tend to carry long over time because they are correct material analysis and therefore apply well to history. Um, but that, and, and so we can be more prepared for the future as revolutionaries, but we should not try to be like walking tarot cards. No. Um, good job, Freddie Beard. All right. Number 20, 20. Go for it. Oh, yes. What will be the consequences of the ultimate disappearance of private property? Dun, dun, dun. Uh, society will take all forces of production and means of commerce, as well as the exchange and distribution of products, out of the hands of private capitalists and will manage them in accordance with a plan based on the availability of resources and the needs of the whole society. In this way, most important of all, the evil consequences which are now associated with the uh, conduct of big industry will be abolished. And, you know, kind of the other direction, right? When he wasn't being chauvinistic and colonial and super racist and trying to predict the future – Engels was incredibly predicting the future in socialist countries because that's the five year plan. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah. Um, there will be no more crisis. Uh, again, nailed it because the Soviet Union was the only one that didn't go through the, the Great Depression. Um, China is avoiding the, the, I mean, they're being hit by it, but because choosing shut down, they're avoiding a lot of the major dips, uh, from COVID and from the consequences of COVID that countries are shutting their eyes to and killing people by the millions because la, 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 profit, profit. Um, The expanded production, which for the present order of society's overproduction and hence a prevailing cause of misery, will then be insufficient and in need of being expanded much further. Instead of generating misery, overproduction will reach beyond the elementary requirements of society to assure the satisfaction of the needs of all. 
It'll create new needs and at the same time, the means of satisfying them. It'll become the condition of and the stimulus to new progress, which will no longer throw the whole social order into confusion, as progress has always done in the past. Again, you don't have to worry about a new machine being developed to cut down on work with like self-checkout, meaning, oh shit, jobs are gone. It'll just be, oh, that's nice. Someone doesn't have to deal with doing that now. Exactly. Uh, big industry freed from the pressure of private property will undergo such an expansion of what we will now see will seem petty in comparison as manufacture seems when put beside the big industry of our own day. This development of industry will make available society a sufficient mass of products to satisfy needs of everyone. Um, that paragraph is true, but we do have to once again touch on like, yay for degrowth, let's go degrowth. And this was written in Europe in the middle of the 19th century. Don't take it too literally in productive forces needing expanded. They just need to be adapted to actually suit for needs rather than overproduction. Yes. Garbage. Yeah, exactly. Um, we have the means to accomplish what Engels is talking about here. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. We Twice don't over. Need, exactly. We don't That is need just allocated to, poorly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same will be true of agriculture, which also suffers from the pressure of private property and is held back by the division of privately owned land into small parcels. Here, existing improvements and scientific procedures will put into practice with the resulting leap forward, which will assure to society all the products it needs. In this way, such an abundance of goods will be able to satisfy the needs of all its members. The division of society into different mutually hostile classes will then become un- unnecessary. Indeed, it will not only be unnecessary but intolerable in the new social order. The existence of classes originated in the division of labor. The division of labor, as it has been up to the present, will completely disappear, for mechanical and chemical processes are not enough to bring industrial and agricultural production up to the level we have described. The capacities of the men who make us make use of these processes must undergo a corresponding development. Just as peasants and manufacturing workers of the last century changed their whole way of life and became quite different people when they were drawn into big industry, in the same way communal control over production by society as a whole and the resulting new development will both require an entirely different kind of human material. Once again, touching on that new Soviet man thing. Yeah. Um, That was well after Engel's time. Uh, People will no longer be, as they are today, subordinated to the single branch of production, bound to it, exploited by it. They will no longer develop one of their faculties at the expense of all others. They will no longer know only one branch or one or a single branch of production as a whole. Even industry, as it is today, is finding such people less and less useful. Uh, The industry controlled by society as a whole and operated according to the plan presupposes well-rounded human beings, their faculties developed in balanced fashion, able to see the system of production in its entirety. I don't know if we need to follow Engel's idea that everyone has to be an expert in everything, but yeah, yeah, there'll be the opportunity to be much more well-rounded. They'll, you know, I mean, secondary and post-secondary education being provided by the state and not just being for like, oh, I want to go to college to get this job. Although there will be a certain amount of people have to do that. Like if they want to be a doctor, you know? Yeah. Uh, the form of the division of labor, which makes one peasant, another a cobbler, third a factory worker, a fourth a stock market operator, has already been undermined by machinery and will completely disappear. Um, education will enable young people quickly to familiarize themselves with a the whole system of production and to pass from one branch of production to another in response to the needs of society or their own inclinations. 
It will therefore free them from one-sided character, which present-day division of labor impresses upon every individual. Communist society will in this way make it possible for its members to put their comprehensively developed faculties to full use. But when this happens, classes will necessarily disappear. It follows the societies organized on a communist basis is incompatible with the existence of classes on one hand, and that very building of such society proves means of abolishing class differences on the other. A corollary for this is the difference between a city and a country is destined to disappear. A uh, little utopian there, Engels. Um, yeah. The management of agriculture and industry by the same people rather than two different classes of people, if only for purely material reasons, a necessary condition of communist association. The dispersal of agricultural population all on the land, alongside the crowding of the industrial population into the great cities, is a condition which corresponds to an undeveloped state of both agriculture and industry and can already be felt as an obstacle to further development. The general cooperation of all members of society for the purpose of planned exploitation of the forces of production, the expansion of production to the point where it will satisfy the needs of all, the abolition of a situation which needs some of some are satisfied at the expense of the needs of others, the complete liquidation of classes and their conflicts, the rounded development of capacities of all members of society throughout the elimination of the present division of labor, throughout industrial education, throughout engaging various activities through the participation by all and the enjoyments produced by all, through the combination of city and country, these are the main consequences of the abolition of private property. And everything except the whole city and country thing Engels is on about is right there. Exactly. Uh, 21, what will be the influence of communist society on the family? It will transform the relations between the sexes into a purely private matter, which concerns only the persons involved and into which society has no occasion to intervene. Get rid of the between the sexes thing and you're fine. Uh, It can do this since it does away with private property and educates children on a communal basis, and in this way removes the two bases of traditional marriage, the dependence rooted in private property of the woman on the man and of the children on the parents. And here is the answer to the outcry of the highly moral Philistines against the community of women. Community of women is a condition which belongs entirely to bourgeois society and which today finds its complete expression in prostitution. But prostitution is based on private property and falls with it. Thus, communist society, instead of introducing community of women, in fact, abolishes it. Not qualified. I don't feel qualified to talk on that. <laughs> so I'm not going to. Um, I, Engels, I, I, so Engels has a whole work on that that maybe we can get into with the... Um, the origin of he, family? He does yeah, the origin of family. That's it. Um, but basically, it's the idea that that family is organized strictly to reproduce private property. Um, and that goes back to property relations. That also fits even what marriage was. You know, uh, historians talk about like in, in the medieval times, people think every, every girl got married at like 14. And that was true of like nobility because marriages were like to marry kingdoms together. It was very diplomatic. Right. And in earnest, the average person got married between 20 and 30 years old, man or woman, to someone about the same age for, for peasants, because it really wasn't that sort of thing, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, there's some weird stuff with the community of women stuff, and there's a lot of contradictions when we start talking about, like, sex work. <laughs> and again, yeah. you can certainly see, especially with the way they throw around degenerates to, to wink at their fascist buddies, how the Pat socks certainly can use that sentence um, you know, against like sex workers or, or women in general. 
but really, if if you focusing on the whole origin of the family um, structure of it, this is something that, for as problematic as Engels have been in, in many colonial ways in this work, uh, this is something um, that the, the language smacks kind of rough, but is actually yeah. very progressive along the whole Cuban family policy, right? Why are we in each other's business? Why are we in each other's relationships? Why do we care? You know, why do people have to hate on people for dating men in, instead of women or, or dating women instead of men or being a man instead of being a woman or being neither one or any of that shit? Why the fuck do we care? Yeah. Right. And all of that shit, all of that shit comes from the necessary structuring of the family, which was built up by the church in basically a church society. But let's face it, in medieval times, people knew the church was hip- hypocritical and everybody thinks everybody's super devout. And and no, like, you know, nuns and priests were fucking everywhere and nobody gave a shit and, and everybody knew the, that the church was full of shit then. And, and it was just very formally that the church was super powerful and scary. And then there were some very brutal events. Um, thanks for Nan and Isabella. Um, for for shit like that, but generally people just didn't give a fuck, right? So um, you said, so you said in medieval times, but the problem is, yeah. is I heard at medieval times, and then you said that whole <laughs> sentence, and so now I'm just imagining weird orgies going on at my family friendly joust house, uh, where I I go to get my chick turkey leg and and watch some guys do uh do some jousting. <laughs> Uh, can, can you pass the condom? There weren't condoms in medieval times. More Pepsi? <laughs> God. Um, oh, but yeah, I mean, that, you know, that, that that's a very, you know, cis heteronormativity, right? Yeah. Um, and, and the whole family morality shit. It's not like that didn't have pre-capitalist roots, but a lot of that was, was roots in the church. And while it was very strict and came in waves of brutality, it genuinely just wasn't listened to or taken seriously. And it became a big societal thing with the emergence of capitalism because it, it had to be. And, and that's why right-wingers push that shit, right? That There's a big force in their production. And that, of course, that's why, you know, um, homophobia and transphobia go hand in hand. And they go hand in hand uh, with anti-abortion activism. And they go hand in hand with a very, like, Christian, you know, white supremacist right. And these things happen for a reason, right? And that, that reason is, is has a lot of su- su- uh, historical significance. It's also like spanking children. That's not something that happened, like, 300 years ago all over the world and shit. That's a very recent development because that's how slave kids were treated. And then people started treating their kids that way in their own family for this like control thing. And so that has its roots in slavery. And a lot of people, you know, again, that goes hand in hand with, Oh, I, my kids came up, right. I spanked my kids, you know? Um, and it's like, well, yeah. Why, why did you hit your child? Right. Um, and, and that all comes from the same thing. And so we're getting into to deep, you know, um, feminist talk and, and things like that, which is really not an angle, an angle you really think of or go to angles for. No, should you go to angles for um, even with the origin of the family there? But that's kind of the direction that is. So, yeah, you know, fuck angles for his colonialism. But 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 obviously kudos for him and most of his revolutionary materialism, including that. Uh, number 22, what will be the attitude of communism to existing nationalities? The nationalities of the peoples associating themselves in accordance with the principles of community will be compelled to mingle with one another as a result of this association and thereby to dissolve themselves. 
just as the various estate and class distinctions must disappear through the abolition of their basis private property. That's, again, utopian, way down the road, not a factor that's going to actually come up <laughs> for a very long time. Um, what will be the attitude? This feels like an FAQ, and, and the, the more, the further you get down, the less relevant in the FAQ you've got. You're getting to, like, one-off cases. Um, yeah. What will be its attitude to existing religions? Okay, a little bit. Yeah, all right, this one's probably good. All religions so far have been the expression of historical stages of development of individual peoples or groups of peoples. But communism is the stage of historical development which makes all existing religions superfluous and brings about their disappearance. Uh, this is very much opiate of the masses stuff. And yeah, again, this is a much longer, more nuanced quote than everybody ever thinks. They just focus on the opiate of the masses sentence, but basically it's you know religious or religion is somewhere that it emerges as a power structure because of the historical time and the poor and the suffering lean on it uh for some comfort in the world for some hope you know when you're told you're gonna die and go to heaven that you know blessed are the poor that feels pretty good when you're the poor right Mm -hmm. and it's not to say you know, church is wrong or should be eradicated from Marxist society or doesn't work with Marxism. There's some very chauvinistic people. Again, I can see the Pat Sox using that line uh, or other reactionaries. I've heard other reactionaries use that kind of line to to stab at the idea of religion and social society. Yeah, religion and social societies works fine. Right. We've, we've heard the, the Michael Parenti. If the churches are empty, it's the communist state is suppressing the, the masses. And if they're full, it's the rebellious people thumbing the communist leadership. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where we get this idea that, like, you know, communism and religion doesn't work. And, you know, most communist revolutionaries are very openly athe- atheistic and, and very much do not like uh, the religion they, they came from or their religious background. Um, and I can I can feel that one as, as an American Catholic. Um but yeah, but you know that doesn't mean like religion is incompatible with with communism, um, or that it will necessarily go away. It just will become superfluous. It would only stick as a cultural signifier to uphold culture because culture is important. And I don't think Engels gives enough heedance to that in that sentence. But I don't think it's really necessary considering the time he was talking and the group he was talking to. This was uh, again 1840s Europe. Yeah. How do communists differ from socialists? The so-called socialists are divided into three categories. Love starting with so-called socialists. That's always a good thing. Yes. Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, we, we've forgotten some of this, like Marx, Engels, Lenin, uh, you know, snark here. Here, so comes, here. here, comes, here comes the comes. snark. Do, 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 do. Reactionary socialists. The first category consists of adherents of a feudal and patriarchal society, which has already been destroyed and is still daily being destroyed by big industry and world trades and their creation bourgeois society this category concludes from the evils of existing society that feudal and patriarchal society must be restored because it was free of such evils in one way or another all the proposals are directed to this end this category of reactionary socialists for all their seeming bipartisanship and their scalding tears for the misery of the proletariat is nevertheless energetically opposed by the communists for the following reasons uh by the way your your americanness made you read partisanship as bipartisanship Oh, yeah. For all their seeming partisanship. Yeah, that changes the sentence. All right. 
Yeah. I'm used to so much cooperation in this country. Yeah. Um, but anyway, these are faux, faux, faux worker-citing people. Remember, these are reactionaries that think that society has been degenerate. You know, these are these are the ones that are like, oh, f- feminists is a, a bourgeois thing. Trans people are pronouns is bourgeois. And, and you know, that's what this is. Exactly. Uh, it strives for something which is entirely impossible. Always a good start. Uh, number two, it seeks to establish the rule of the aristocracy, the guild masters, the small producers, and their retinue of absolute or feudal monarchs, officials, soldiers, and priests. A society which was, to be sure, free of the evils of present-day society, but which brought it at least as many evils without even offering to the oppressed workers the prospect of liberation through a communist revolution. As soon as the proletariat, three, as soon as the proletariat becomes revolutionary and communist, these reactionary socialists show their true colors by immediately making common cause with the bourgeoisie against the proletarians. Again, we have seen this, the, the, the Twitch streamers anonymous class of, of quote unquote yeah. socialists, the Pat Sox. We've been pointing to this work to, to rip on. It, it basically talks about them in here in this mm-hmm. section. You know, I mean, we, you should be able to see this, right? We want the liberation of everyone, you know, and if you're going to join a group and immediately look at a certain group of people and go, oh, you don't belong. And that group of people isn't like cops or a class enemy of some kind. Um, there are other oppressed masses. Yeah, something's wrong. You're a reactionary shithead. You need to get the fuck out. Goodbye. Next up, we have the bourgeois socialists. The second category consists of adherents of present-day society who have been frightened for its future by the evils to which it necessarily gives rise. This feels like liberals. What they want, therefore, is to maintain the society while getting rid of the evils which are inher- inherent part of it. To this end, some propose mere welfare measures, while others come forward with grandiose schemes of reform, which under the pretense of reorganizing society are, in fact, intended to preserve the foundation and hence the life of the existing society. That is general liberal behavior, and then that is the New Deal. Boom, boom. Done, done. Mm-hmm. Uh, communists must unremittingly struggle against these bourgeois socialists because they work for the enemies of communists and protect the society which communists aim to overthrow. Yeah, and again, I mean, this is this is your Bernie Kratz, right? I I'm curious if that's if that's them well, this or is before this, that again. We're okay, so we shouldn't we shouldn't entirely prescribe this because we are talking about 1840s Europe, but comparatively, mm-hmm. that's what that is. I think like, so. These I'm, groups of people have always existed. Yeah, um, and I think I think that is the Bernie Kratz group. I really do think that's them. Yeah, um, and and the FDRs. Uh, again, the, under the pretense of reorganizing society, that that sounds like the New Deal, uh, which yeah. are but are in fact intended to preserve the foundations and hence the life of existing society. New Deal, New Deal, New Deal. Um, last but not least, we have the democratic socialists. Finally, the third category consists of democratic socialists who favor some of the same measures the communists advocate, as described in question 18, not as part of the transition to communism, however, but as a measure which they believe will be sufficient to abolish the misery and evils of present day society. Basically, the elect communisms, not elect the reforms, but oppose communism, but elect communism, you know, types, right? These democratic socialists are either proletarians who are not yet sufficiently clear about the conditions of the liberation of their class, or they are representatives of the petty bourgeois, a class which, prior to the achievement of democracy and the socialist measures to which it gives rise, has many interests in common with the proletariat. 
It follows that in moments of action, the communists will have to come to an understanding with these democratic socialists and in general to follow as far as possible a common policy with them, provided that these socialists do not enter into the service of the ruling bourgeoisie and attack the communists. It is clear that this form of cooperation and action does not exclude the discussion of differences. Mm-hmm. These are your comrades who are going to show up to the, the protest with you, are going to do the mutual aid with you, but they don't want the violent overthrow of the government. Well, yeah, of course you're going to work with them, but you're going to tell them, look, this isn't going to work. Yeah. Right. You can run all, all the candidates you want. You're not going to elect communism. So. Nope. And last but not least, section 25, what is the attitude of the communists to other political parties of our time? The attitude is different in the different countries. In England, France, and Belgium, where the bourgeois rules, the communists still have a common interest with the various democratic parties, an interest which is all the greater the more closely the socialistic measures they champion approach the aims of the communists. That is, the more clearly and definitely they represent the interests of the proletariat and more they depend on the proletariat for the support. In England, for example, the working class chartists are infinitely closer to the communists than the democratic petty bourgeois or the so-called radicals. Mm -hmm. Oh, goody. In America. Well, okay. So, again, very different reasons. uh, But these are the people that were fighting for, you know. Worker rights and worker power, and uh, but along in system lines. Again, anyone wanting you know voting rights or wanting to to sh- work with communists and, and shorten the working day. These were revolutionary working class people, but they weren't seeking to abolish the government. Um, they were seeking certain specific demands. Yep, the People's Charter, I think, is what it was called. Something to that effect. Yes. Yeah. Uh, In America, where a democratic constitution has already been established, oh goody, the communists must make common the common cause with the party which will turn this constitution against the bourgeoisie and use it in the interest of the proletariat. That is with the agrarian national reformers, a group that we all know about, probably a (laughs) reference to the National Reform Association founded during the 1840s by George H. Evans, which headquarters in new york which with headquarters in new york city which had for its motto vote yourself a farm uh okay yeah that's that's a group that we're all very familiar with obviously in switzerland the radicals though a very mixed party are the only group with which the communists can cooperate and among these radicals the voido voido and Genovese, Genovese are the most advanced. Vado, I'm going to say. Uh, in okay. Germany... Fi- I'm not going to pretend like I can I can pronounce that. In Germany, finally... Well, the, hold on. The yeah. second one, though, I am, I, am, I am sure. It's Genovese. Genovese? Not Genovese? Genovese. Okay. Genovese. Genovese. Okay. In Germany... But the, fi- the Vadio... Vadwa, I don't know. Vado. Uh, in Germany, finally, the decisive struggle... Now on the order of the day is that between the bourgeois and the absolute monarchy. Since the communists cannot enter upon their decisive struggle between themselves and the bourgeoisie until the bourgeoisie is in power, it follows that it is in the interest of the communists to help the bourgeoisie to power as soon as possible in order to the sooner be able to overthrow it. Yeah, against the governments, therefore, the communists must continually support the radical liberal party taking care to avoid the self-deceptions of the bourgeoisie and not fall for the enticing promises of benefits which a victory of the bourgeoisie would allegedly bring to the proletariat. 
The sole advantage which the proletariat would derive from a bourgeois victory would consist, one, in various concessions which would facilitate the unification of the proletariat into a closely knit, battle-worthy, and organized class, and two, in the certainty... in the certainty that on the very day the absolute monarchies fall, the struggle between bourgeoisie and proletariat will start. From that day on, the policy of the communists will be the same as it is now in countries where the bourgeoisie is already in power, in the name and on the mandate of the Congress. Yeah, and again, this is 1847, the time, the stuff at the time. You know, this is not going to be directly applicable. Every The other first 24 points make a lot more sense to us. Yes. That being said, that is the conclusion of Principles of Communism, and I am glad we did a little detour on it. It was nice to get back to some uh, foundational-level stuff. Yeah, yeah, we have the foundational-level stuff. We're also able to pick apart um, where people, you know, misuse marks again because Mm -hmm. this is stuff that people have, and we'll be able to pivot right back to the Red Deal and get back into today and what we need. Exactly. Well, all of that being said, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books, and there are a number of different ways that you can reach out to us, one of which is through email. You can email us at marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. Next up, you could get us on Twitter. We're at Mark's Madness Pod on Twitter. DMs are open, and in our Twitter bio is a link to our Discord server, where we have a group running their own independent book club that runs parallel to the show. Uh, right now, uh, they, I'm not actually 100% sure what they're working on. I know they're, they're coming back from hiatus. Um, and they were, they were working on some new stuff. So I will have to check in and see what they are doing and check back on that next week. Um, cool. but that being said, it's just a good place to hang out and chill and, uh, be around comrades. So I'm always for that. Uh, it's good for my mental health. That being said, David, it's time for a disclaimer. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously when uh, Nathan and I started this, um, I guess I'll just say it that way because Shubhani 2 is not here this week. Um, uh, Nathan and I started this. It was we were reading Capital um, kind of, you know, again, came from this work largely um, and was written partially by Engels, um, largely by Marx. So, um, you know, Nathan came up and was like, hey, you've read this before. Theory is something that's good to, to read together with someone. And as someone who's read it before, you're probably a good person to do it with. Can we read this as a group, talk it over, look at the context, all that stuff? And we did. And we decided to record it because there's only two of us. And lo and behold, here you guys are sharing it with us. Um, and ever since we started the podcast, something we wanted is hopefully you're out in your cadre or your party or your organizing group of any kind. And you have a reading group, political education group, and you're reading this work along with us. And hopefully we can be another voice, another sense, um point of input, someone else to bring some more conversation to the table to help give you all the benefits of that reading group. If not, um, let's say, you know, your organization is reading something more targetable at a work they're doing. Um, hopefully we can be that reading group and we can give you that extra context, give you the other chance to reflect on it, give you those other perspectives so that you get the most out of it. And let's say that's not happening and it's either a work like this where we read it word for word, even if part 25 is hardly even applicable anymore. Um or work that we summarize more, whatever we can do to make these works more accessible to you, because we want these works out there guiding your actions. When you turn these works into revolutionary action, that's a phenomenon called praxis. Praxis, of course, by definition, cannot exist without the theory, and theory is completely useless without the praxis. They go hand in hand. They are tied at the hip. Amen. As always, that being said, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will talk to you all next week.